0: and welcome to our Rural Medley. Today I am speaking to Gary Nixon, a rural hospital specialist based in Dunstan and an Associate Professor of Rural Health at the University of Otago. I asked myself how do I introduce a person of Gary's calibre and do his contribution to rural medicine, rural medical training and academic research justice. I've been wanting to capture Gary's knowledge and thoughts as he has been instrumental in the initiation of Rural Hospital Medicine training programme, the original drive needed and then the ongoing ensuring the ongoing development and progression of our scope of practice. It is knowledge that is key to record, so we do not forget the old days and whence we came from. So welcome, Gary. It's great to have you this morning, and I appreciate your time.
1: Mō listener, Great to be here.
0: Good. So uh, as I say to the team, just grab a cup of tea. Gary and I are going to have a chat about a lot of things that he's been involved with over the years, and I hope you enjoy it. So, Gary, you've had a lot of experience in the New Zealand's rural sector, and I think mainly in the South Island. I don't know if you've ever ventured to the uh, mighty North. But can we explore the development of rural health over your medical career?
1: Oh, that's a pretty big topic, isn't it? So feel free to sort of like you know um, be specific at any point when I ramble on about uh, about any of that. But I guess the, the first thing is to know that um, that you know there's been a lot of people before us. I can. You know, certainly remember now that sort of the generation before the last generation, you know, people like Eric Alder, who was a very long-standing GP in Jōtāpuri, practiced there for probably half a century and was largely responsible for the setting up of the College of GPs and the General Practice Training Programme. I know I did my fifth year attachment with, with Eric in the 1980s, and he was well into his 70s then. Oh, wow. Um, and, and people like David Cook of that sort of same generation who was uh GP in AWACA and chair of the college when I was a GP registrar with him. Um, and then there's sort of that more latter generation as well. People like Martin London and Ron James, Tony Birch. I mean, obviously Ron, you, you mm. knew really well Lucinda. Yes. Um some of whom have written what they did and what they were thinking at the time and it is really interesting and, and valuable to actually go back and, and read that again. I mean others like Dennis Pizarro and Trevor Walker were quite influential on me. Um mm. and then, and then Pat Farry was was absolutely crucial. Uh, it's really important not to forget his contribution. And we mm. wouldn't have the Royal Hospital Medicine Training Program if it hadn't been Pat who set up the University diploma that preceded that, um, and we wouldn't have things like the Royal medicine, Real medical admission program
0: mm-hmm. either
1: if it wasn't for Pat. And um, Pat was probably the down south. He was the first rural academic, and up north it was it was really Ron. It was the first rural uh, academic. So I guess that's where we're really you know, it's really important to go back and think about the contribution that group made before you sort of start moving forward, really.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you mentioned some names I know and some I don't. And you're right. You know, we do. We stand on, I recently heard this phrase, the shoulder of giants and everyone contributes, don't they, to the development and where we are today. So, yeah, I agree. It's good to recognise where we've come from so we can look forward. Have you ever made it to the North Island, Gary, or have you ever worked up here?
1: Well, I, I sort of, i am reasonably travelled in terms of, you know, have holidays or... and ve- <laughs> adventures and things like that. And I once did a, a locum for a couple of weeks in the Hukia because I owed cardio favour. Uh... Uh, um, and I travelled over, overseas a bit too, but probably fair to say reasonably stuck work-wise down south. You, get quite embedded in the, well, I certainly have anyway in the local culture. I mean, I really understand patients down here in a way that mm. I almost feel I couldn't understand them almost anywhere else. And um, mm. I, I guess that's one of the reasons for me it's really so important that we grow rural health professionals from the communities and give them an opportunity to, to then go back because they can take something there in terms of a depth of understanding that not failing to recognise the absolute importance of imports. Mm. They're crucial, um, crucial yeah. but there is the real depth that someone who grew up in an area can bring when they return and practise their craft through the years in that community.
0: Yeah, well, you do have a good hub down there in Dunstan, and I can see how you tend to stick like glue to the area. <laughs> Uh, as much as we try to get some of them to progress back north. So it would be really interesting to explore a wee bit further in terms of that development around the Rural Hospital Medicine Training Program and talking about maybe some of the discussions that we had at the beginning and how it all evolved um, and what need did you see and how did the training program actually come about, Gary?
1: It arose largely out of a serious vacuum. There was a few things that happened, I guess, in the 1990s and early 2000s, which meant that the workforce in our small rural hospitals was at a, you know, an absolute crisis. And back in those times, the state of the rural hospital workforce was way worse than it was in general practice. I almost feel that's sort of slightly reversed now, but that's mm. the way it certainly was at that time. <coughs> I think there's a few reasons for that. One is that quite a few rural hospitals were losing their specialist workforces. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the physicians and the anaesthetists and the surgeons were shifting away from places like, you know, down the centre of the country like Omaru and, and, and Balclutha, for example. Mm. I think the other thing that had happened was that the scope of general practice and the general practice training program had been developed and there was sort of an implicit understanding when that was done that general practice stopped at the hospital door. I mean, this mm-hmm. is something that Picardis I think, explored really well and some of the research that she's done. And which I, in urban areas, that may make sense. Yeah. But th- that really left the group of doctors who, uh, in rural areas, who were still considered hospital practice as a part of their, an essential part of their scope, sort of out on a limb. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the other thing that happened. And then the other thing that possibly happened is that in some areas, there was often quite a few really small cottage hospitals, which the local GP managed to combine into their GP practice reasonably well. And in some areas, they were, quite a few of the really small ones were closed and they were sort of combined And that's certainly what happened in the area here, um, which meant that the hospital and its catchment reached a size, therefore that it sort of needed its own dedicated medical workforce. So I think all those things combined meant that it really put pressure on it and there was no training scheme, there was no professional pathway. It was sort of seen very much as a dead-end job and nobody was interested in entering it you know, at the start of their career. Uh, I think probably over a decade, possibly Lisa Williamson down here was the only young doctor who did that. And she really only did that because we sort of hounded her from the day that she entered medical school. Because she she came from here. (laughs) You want to Uh, go back? Yeah, yeah. So it was very much that vacuum. It was Pat Ferry was the first person who decided that you could actually do something about that. And he set up the university diploma that created the community, and it was in that community that got on and created the division and the training program.
0: So when was the diploma started? Like, what year did that start?
1: Um, about 2000, I think. About, okay. Right, oh, right so that was that actually, time.
0: yeah, so that was pre the training program. So you had that first. All oh, right. right.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah went that way, which I think is probably one of the main reasons that then the diploma got wrapped into the training program as it moved forward because we really wanted things to happen pretty quickly and we didn't want to sort of reinvent the wheel. We wanted to use things that were up and going. So mm. that's why it, why it happened that way.
0: And also yeah. another area that I sort of see it happening from was that it allowed that professional development and that upskilling of those who were already there. And then, because then you also did, apart from the training program of new graduates, the grandparenting scheme, didn't you?
1: Yeah, we did. That happened at the beginning too. And that's the routine thing to occur when any new scope of practice is developed. So when, when general practice was developed or emergency medicine was developed, for example, then the same process occurred. And interestingly, the process that was put in place for that was actually more rigorous than what the medical council wanted us to do. I think what people would be surprised about. Um, Because what had previously occurred when a new practice was developed, then I think someone merely sort of got a couple of references from someone, a colleague, to say that they'd been working in the area for X number of years or whatever. (laughs) So we actually did put in a bit of a formal process, which wasn't required of us
0: no well I think um I didn't go through the grandparenting scheme but I you know I suspect that was really good overall for the caliber and the skill set of the doctors working in the rural arena wasn't it and to ensure the good quality care which was the whole aim isn't it to reduce health inequities and ensure good quality care in rural areas
1: Oh yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, this is about the provision of quality health services to the communities that we live in. Mm-hmm. Recognising that high quality rural health services are structured and are f- delivered in fundamentally different ways to what quality health services in a city uh, delivered. But yeah, it's totally around, totally around that. Yeah,
0: And totally but, achievable. <laughs> Not impossible to achieve, is it? You know, despite the ongoing health inequities that rural people have, if we had the actual ability to implement it all and and the personnel and the staff would be able to achieve
1: it. Yeah, it's not as if there's another option. Hmm. So it's either done that way or rural people miss out. Hmm. And that's sometimes forgotten, I think, from those people looking at it from an urban perspective. But then there is a great deal of international evidence and a bit of local evidence to suggest that, in in fact, that the quality of outcomes by doing it that way are actually pretty good. It's not that we disadvantage rural people by delivering healthcare in a different way.
0: When you say we deliver healthcare differently, what do you think are the differences in terms of rural versus urban provision?
1: The fundamental difference is generalism. That's definitely the biggest difference. Mm. It, it's just inevitable that scopes of rural practice, not only in medicine, but for all health professionals, are much broader than they are in the city. That they, they just have to be. And because of that, then there are other things that are different as well, too, in, in terms of the connections that we have with Specialist colleagues and things like that, our ability to work with them and consult with them in a shared care sort of way with respect to our patients, and also our particular skills around uh, transfer and that sort of thing.
0: Mm. And you know, I think that's the people who get into rural health, that's what we love about it, isn't it? That Mm. every day, you know, just that sheer diversity. I mean, I'm not currently working in rural health, but I was thinking about general practice yesterday and how. One patient can be peds and then the next can be an elderly woman and then it can be a young man and just that sheer diversity. And it's the same in anywhere and whether you're in the hospital or in general practice and rural health. And I think that's what we love about it.
1: Um, yeah, 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 I agree. I mean, I think anybody that you're talking to, and I just listened to the podcast you did with Brendan as well. It comes through really strongly, didn't that? That's a real pleasure of it. I mean, I'd never do a weekend working here and not think at the end of the weekend... That was just, that was really amazing. That was just absolutely fascinating.
0: Yeah, there's never any boredom, is there? And I just think, you know, the other day I learned about a new condition. And Mm -hmm. in generalism, I mean, I suppose you do that in a specialty, you know, a subspecialty too, but not to the same degree that I think that every day that we have that opportunity to learn about something new.
1: Mm and Yeah, it's fabulous. There's one probably other thing sort of right from those early discussions, which I think is quite pertinent to that day as well, too. There was quite a lot of discussion in the early days with people like Pat Ferry around the relationship between rural hospital medicine and rural general practice. And I remember often sort of saying to Pat, well, look, you know, surely what we have to do is we have to sort of wait and we have to do this in tandem with rural general practice, given the fact that. Most of us were working across those scopes and sort out our training and our professional issues at the same time. But Pat's counsel to us was no, that actually we couldn't afford to do that, that the workforce crisis we were facing in the hospitals was so serious that we had to get on and do it, that it would probably take be a much slower and longer process or rural general practice to sort that out. And he was right. That's sort of only occurring at the moment. Mm. Uh, But Pat said that we must always structure the rural hospital medicine training program and its institutions like the division in a way that meant that as we moved out into the future, we could work really closely with rural general practice and in particular didn't disadvantage that large number of us that work across those two scopes. Hmm.
0: I think there is a number aren't there? I don't know the number of the current trainees who do both certainly are dual fellows or training towards being dual fellows
1: Yeah, yeah it's the majority Yeah, and right that's, that's been really one of the gratifying things and real probably successes of the Royal Hospital Medicine Training Program is that the majority are doing dual fellowship
0: They're very compatible obviously, hmm. the skill sets hmm. are very compatible Um, So Not only from doing all of your day-to-day rural hospital work, Gary, but you also have embarked on a number of research projects. And if anyone Googles Gary Nixon, you'll come up with a number of papers that you've published. But I want to explore research because I know you're a little bit passionate about it. And it would be great now that we have the training program and the scope and everything to continue to develop and see this as an area that people could move into. So, it can be seen as being hard to achieve research when you're not based in a place of academia. What would you say to that? And how have you managed to achieve the research from your rural base?
1: Well, for me, it was probably pretty accidental. And I think Cardi would probably tell you the same. It definitely wasn't intentional. And when I started doing clinical practice, it absolutely never occurred to me that I would have the slightest interest in <laughs> And doing and being involved in in research just about everything that we've done and one of the neat things about research is it's a really it's a team effort which is a real pleasurable sort of part of it In, in particular when a lot of your clinical practice can sort of feel a little bit lonely at times so it's really good it wasn't very intentional and everything that we've done largely arose from what felt like pretty important questions that come out of clinical practice or, you know, come out of, of rural health generally. Yeah, But th- having done that, having said that, there are parts of it that I really, really like and really enjoy. Like I, I can remember the first time that I started doing a little bit of that stuff and I sat down and I worked through a morning of work. I remember because I actually went to the Needham that day and I sat down and I did it. And at the end of the morning, I think, i I never in my entire career sat down and thought about one thing for three hours in a row. And you know, usually the max you get is like about 10 minutes, isn't it? Before there's another thing comes along that you've got to deal with. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. true. And the pleasure of actually sitting down and doing that was just, was huge. And I think that's definitely one of the things that I enjoy about it. It's also quite disciplined. You You can't get away with a lot in terms of, the way you think and write, yeah. When when you're doing research, and that's good. F- that's good for you. I've enjoyed that. Um, and then probably the biggest one is the team side of it, and the fact that you're, especially now for me, you know, I'm working with health geographers and health economists mm. and public health mm. people and all Maori mm. people, and I really really enjoy just getting a little bit of insight into the way that they view the world. Um, so that's that's a really neat side of it as well.
0: Yeah, they're probably people that at the beginning of your career, Gary, you never thought that you would interact with in a significant amount or or at all, maybe.
1: Yeah. Yeah totally totally right. I um, you, you you do sort of get you do, do get to rise particularly when the projects involve rural health issues that your perspective and presence is really important. I mean mm-hmm. they know huge amounts but there's a lot about the context that you take for granted that they don't know. I mean you can never be a health economist or you know, biostatistician or whatever. Well, Rory can be. He can be a biostatistician, but the rest of us can't. Um, But your presence is still, and your perspective is still very important.
0: And I think that comment around is really true, isn't it? Around the context and being able to give firsthand to people who live and work in different areas so that they truly understand what it's like and being on the coalface. So, you know, you might move into further areas around this, Gary. You know you want we might see you in politician land and making the politicians move be great you'd be great at that as i said quietly I, unassuming Gary.
1: i think there's you know as we sort of like mature as rural health matures then it's really important that there's a whole lot of us working in different parts of the sector And, and, you know, it's really important that there's a few of us who sort of, you know, wandered off into the more academic research-orientated stuff, generating the evidence, that sort of thing, trying to deliver high-quality teaching programs as well, which is, you know, equally complicated. But there is actually also really important that there's a group of us that are heading off more into that leadership type stuff and engaging with the ministry and how Haua were and getting involved with Tefatu Order. Ora. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and so none of us can do all those things individually. No. Um, but it, it's important that there's some of us involved in all those places. Yeah, so it's therefore really great to see people like Jeremy and Sarah and Brendan involved in that mm. ministry, yeah. more political sort of level.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. We can just continue to support them in that, can't we? Mm-hmm. Can you choose a couple of the papers that you've done and we've sort of touched a wee bit on this but around the topic and how it's influenced rural health in New Zealand and maybe specifically your workplace or other people's workplaces?
1: Yeah, most of the work that I've done, I've, well, a large chunk of it anyway, I've done in partnership with CARI which from my perspective has been really important because we sort of always figured that If it makes sense down here where I am, and it makes sense where Mm. Cardi is up north, then it probably makes sense generally for rural and New Zealand, because we're pretty diverse. Things are pretty Mm. different from community to community. The first thing we ever did was around measuring antisteptokinase antibodies in patients presenting with heart disease in our communities. Mainly because up north they were being told that they had to keep using streptokinase, whereas the big centres were moving to the much more expen- uh, expensive, and I have to say, easier to use agents like TPA and now um, now place, And we sort of, based on some international evidence, have a little bit of a suspicion that. People living in areas with higher levels of rheumatic fever, and therefore strep A infections probably had high levels of antistreptokinase antibodies, and therefore there was a definite possibility that the drug didn't even work for them. That the antibodies just mopped it up and the drug didn't work. Um, so that was sort of, that was the first thing that we did. In fact, we did demonstrated that. We demonstrated that patients presenting with acute coronary syndromes in the Hokianga had much higher levels of anti antistreptokinose antibodies than down south. And that the first places in New Zealand, which should be getting access to these new expensive agents mm. were places like the Hokianga, mm. rather than, than being the last places to get access to it, which is what was happening at the time. So that was the first one we ever did.
0: In, and and once you published that, did you manage to get a change? Because it's so true, isn't it? Like,
1: yeah, I, It's well, some of these are always hard to know because, you, you know, it was probably changing anyway at the time. Mm. But, I mean, it may have had an effect. And hopefully it just, you know, generated a little bit of a message in terms of that you have to take in, into account the, some of the particular characteristics of some of those communities in deciding, you know, the priority that they should have for new treatments. Mm.
0: For people who don't know, Cardi Blattner is a rural hospital medicine specialist up in the Hokianga in Northland. I like that theory, actually, Gary, you know, in terms of the demographics and the population in Northland would be, Mm. I would say, fundamentally different to Dunstan. So as you say, doing any research together covers quite a broad spectrum of what rural New Zealand might see. So, yeah, nice. I like that. And that's fascinating. I just... I mean, I'd love to get into research one day and try to find out where and how I can fit that into my life. But when you say, like, that was just a really practical, intelligent thought process and mm-hmm. and actually put it into fruition. Yeah, awesome. There you go, Tim. Other ones? I'm hoping you've got a couple more there because that was interesting, Gary. Come on, keep us... Keep going.
1: Um, What other mean, We... Did quite a lot around point of care, around point of care laboratory, point of care ultrasound. And I think we demonstrated pretty clearly that those point of care diagnostic technologies have got a lot to offer uh, mm. rural areas. And they not only are, are really good for um, intensive diagnostic certainty and therefore patient care, but also for um, perhaps job satisfaction's not the the right word, but it it certainly makes life easier for all docs with that increased diagnostic certainty from those tests. And I think we also demonstrated that it makes sense in terms of resource allocation that those technologies, although they're a cost to the local health service, they generate big savings to the wider health service in terms of reduced transfers and base hospital admissions, and therefore really make Sense in an economic way as well too, yeah. I mean, if I was sort of prioritising things at a national level, then you know I'd be putting wind of care technology based in rural general practices and rural hospitals well ahead of you know perhaps some of the other initiatives which have been talked about. Well um, said, Gary. Well said. I guess the other the other couple of ones. I mean, one would be around some stuff around CT scanning, which is Again, we demonstrated that rural people had much poorer access to CT scanning down south than people living in the urban centres. And certainly down in this part of the country, then that helped precipitate putting in a number of CT scanners into the rural hospitals. And that started to, I was seeing that now start to appear in other parts of the country as well. If the interesting one for me about that one was that although I did that work, I was definitely the luddite locally. I mean, I, well, even though I, I didn't actually think that having a local CT scanner would be uh, particularly okay. a good,
0: <laughs> particularly advantageous. You were like, P- particularly no. advantageous.
1: But I was, I was wrong. Listen, I was totally wrong. Like, it's made a huge difference you, here.
0: could can live yeah. without it now. No, exactly, exactly. Uh, completely, re- I mean, you're very lucky to have one. And, I'm, and many people, I think, when we catch up at rural conferences or workshops are like, wow, aren't you lucky to have a CT scanner there? As you say, I think it's just around sometimes having that certainty and it just reduces some of that, I suppose, stress and angst and worry that we have as clinicians around are we missing something or is there something else going on here and you can, I don't know, it's just nice to have some of that sometimes. I mean, we deal with uncertainty all the time, don't we? That's part of being in rural and being mm. able to manage that.
1: Yeah, I, the way medicine is going with increasing technology, then that is a driver to centralization. I understand that. I and mean, that's you know, we can't have a neurosurgical unit in every provincial hospital mm. in New Zealand. It's just not going to work. I and mean, that that's the reality. But equally, technology can be a driver and towards decentralization as well. And I think that's particularly important around diagnostics. You know, I'm, I'm really in favor of as much as possible putting as many diagnostics in the hands of, of rural health professionals as we possibly can. Yeah. Hmm.
0: What are you currently researching? Have you got something on the go at the moment? Or
1: Yeah, I'm the big... Big stuff for me now probably is around the population health epidemiology stuff and looking at urban rural disparities. That's probably something I wanted to look at for a very long time. It's something that you need a pretty big team for. We've just had a big grant, which is just finishing got another big grant, which is just starting up for the next three years ar- around that. And that's probably a real opportunity to really look closely at urban-rural disparities, both in terms of health outcomes, but also in terms of access to services. As one of the really senior members of our team sort of says to me a few times, that um, who's urban-based who's urban and, and population now, they said, well, this is just what you guys are doing. It's just basic epidemiology. And the inference being is, you know, how can we possibly you know, in this day and age, be where we are with this basic epidemiology not having been done with respect yeah, right. to rural populations in New Zealand. And I think we are well behind what's been done internationally. And, 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 it, and it's definitely a bit of catch up there. Yep.
0: Is this just based in Otago? Are you just looking down there or are you have you got a national team? Or where are you?
1: Where's your oh No, no it's very much, very much a national team. And it's a collaboration which involves researchers from Otago and from Waikato. And and the, the big data sets and things that we're using are national data sets.
0: Hmm. Oh, well, good. Well, as you say, it probably should have been done a long time ago, but better to start now, better late than never. <clears throat> so part of our aim today, Gary, is to... And I think we have actually looked at some of this, and some of our discussions around you can get into political, and uh, that when you enter into medicine, you can do the clinical aspects, but there is always potential non-clinical career options too, isn't there? So, do you have any other thoughts around inspiring, or you know, getting people to go for their dreams around that sort of side of things, Gary? You've got wise words, Gary. Go on. Mm-hmm. I want them. Oh,
1: I want them. But, um, <laughs> I mean, you, you've you've got a, you've definitely got to create opportunities for people, in, including making them realise that they have those opportunities. That can sort of like be like a, sort of looked at as like pushing people into doing stuff. Mm. Might have a little bit of a reputation for doing that, but. I I don't see it that way. I see it very much as sort of making sure people know that they have the potential to do that and that the opportunity exists to do that. A lot of things I wouldn't do the the way that I did them, um, particularly around the academic stuff. I would, if someone's interested in, seriously interested in, in teaching and research, and it's really important that quite a few of us are, then I think, you know, I'd really encourage them. Sure get a little bit of a handle on things as a new vocationally registered doctor, uh, registered GP or RHM, but then th- th- then start to think seriously about about doing a higher degree, you know doing a master's or a PhD and getting into it properly and getting into it in a supported and supervised sort of way. So there probably really wasn't much of those options for us early on, but mm. that's the way I definitely encourage people to get into those er- into those areas. Um, and, it, and it may well be for someone who's particularly interested in, in it for them to actually do that as part of their training, to hire, which is frequently done in other specialties, to mm. hire a PhD or master's into their registrar years. It's inevitable, though, I think just every senior rural doc is going to have to have a, another string to their bow. So I don't think any of us will really totally get away with that doing just solely clinical medicine I think there's mm. variably going to be one other area we're going to have to get dragged into I know mean, for a lot of people that's been around the clinical leadership in their institution and it's mm-hmm. been pretty frequent for someone for their first um, SMO job to actually be as a clinical director and that again that wouldn't happen in other scopes of practice but in, in our area just because of you know the dearth of senior people then that's that's happened pretty frequently so. Mm. Yeah, so probably have a little bit of a think about which of those areas you're going to be most interested in because it's inevitable it's going to be one of them. If it is going to be into the clinical leadership, again, I've never, you know, I did, I did that early on, but i I've never done any of the formal sort of processes around that. But I think one or two people are starting to. They're starting to look at those clinical leadership programs.
0: We're all quite used to uh, learning on the job, aren't we? You know, see one, do one, teach one. So um, you know, trying to just have to wing it
1: a little bit, wing it
0: is. Uh, it, we're not. It's not so out of our thought process, is it?
1: No, it's not. And and we're probably pretty good at that. And we're probably pretty adaptive, just in the same way that we have to be repeatedly to adaptive to a urban orientated healthcare system. You know, we get good at. Adapting and working in in systems which aren't designed for us. That's that's almost one of the things that we do best. But Mm. at at the same time, I mean, one of the things that I have seen evolving quite necessarily is that our institutions and our structures and the way that we do things is maturing. Mm. So we, we are getting, you know, more professional and a little bit more formal around how we do things whether or not that be our role in academia or whether or not it be within the college or, or whether or not it be within clinical leadership in our institutions. And I, th- I think that's good. I think that's a natural yeah. maturing process that does have to occur. And if we're going to sort of hold our own in the greater health system, then I think that's something that has to happen.
0: I like that, Gary. Hold our own in the greater health system. I think we certainly are doing that now, aren't we? Like We've certainly got some vocal voices and it's good that, as you I think, the the need has been recognised and the formalisation of processes, as it's those needs around professional development for non-clinical areas, for supporting staff or jobs and things, it's been developed. So that is essential and positive. Tell us, are you going to do God's Own again, or?
1: No, I'm in the post God's Own phase of my life. Lucinda. To...
0: You mentioned something before about maturing, and I thought it was going to be you, but I think you're actually talking about the um, training program.
1: Sorry, Yeah, I think my the cartilage of my knees is mature. Well, I don't know if mature is the right way to express it, but. Um, no, like, yeah, no, de- definitely, definitely. I think they might let me sort of hang around in the support crew. So you'd be very
0: youthful on that,
1: which you're not, you know, in the previous races, you weren't allowed a support crew, but you are now. So, yeah, um, I see
0: that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, So that'll sort of let me do it vicariously through others. Yeah. Like we've seen. quite, Quite keen on that
0: like we've said, you know, having that innate knowledge and understanding, just like rural health is very useful for God's own. And then also your medical skills in terms of if anyone gets sick will be doubly useful. So I think having you on the support crew would be key. So whoever the team is, you ask to be part of their support crew, they should never say no.
1: Yeah, you've got to be careful around that too, though. Listen, there's a real risk sort of when you've been around the traps for a little while, that sort of you know you've got to sort of understand that things change and there's different ways of doing things and there's different perspectives too and i think that's i think that's really really important and, and particularly for like someone where i am now i think creating space for others is got to be really top top priority but rather than necessarily jumping in there and and solving it yourself if, if you know what i mean mm, mm. Yeah.
0: Any other pearls you want to tell us, Gary? Oh,
1: I probably had enough of me with that, with that light, haven't you, Lucinda? That's probably plenty, isn't it?
0: Honestly, I, you know, as I said, it's always very interesting to talk to you and you're eloquent and articulate and I enjoy it. So I've really appreciated your time today, Gary, and I'm sure the team will thoroughly enjoy listening to your chat today. So thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your day. I know you've got a few other meetings to get to, so... Thank you, everyone. That's the end of our Rural Medley podcast for today, and I'll look forward to talking to you in the future.
1: Great. Thanks, Lucinda. You do a great job on these. uh, Keep it up.
0: Thanks, Gary.